Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. These two entirely different tragedies in the same week raised some important and similar questions. Some of them answered there by Pastor Brasino, like how to care in the face of tragedy, how to show compassion, what to say, what not to say. It can be a tricky thing to get right, and the Christian community gets it right lots of times. Sometimes it doesn't. Which is why Anglicare, in a really forward-thinking initiative, has set up a disaster recovery ministry to coordinate, to train, to equip people to reach out in care and compassion at just the right time. Although this is a tricky question to contemplate, we've got to get it right. Which is why I reckon the disaster recovery ministry is a brilliant initiative. The man who heads it up is Magnus Linder, a former firefighter for whom the West explosion this past week rang lots of alarming bells. I'm so glad to say he's now joining us on Open House. Magnus, welcome. Thanks, Lee. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for coming in. As a man who's no stranger to these kinds of events, what goes through your mind when you see a week like this unfold? Well, as someone that actually has finished a marathon actually twice, I couldn't imagine what it'd be like to actually have a leg blown off at the end of finishing such a, an enormous race. And as a former firefighter, thinking of the, the Waco, Texas explosion, particularly when the first responders arrive, uh, not too different from the many firefighters that lost their lives at the World Trade Centres. You know, any fiery would have been there and would have done the best they could to get people out of harm's way. And, uh, yeah, my thoughts are... I suppose, with the families of those people too, thinking what anguish and what loss, uh, and particularly for those that have died, you know, what's left behind. And there's the repercussions are just enormous. There are also the injured. I often think this, we in the media are always leaping to the death toll, understandably. Mm. But there's no concept of how significant those injuries often are. Yeah, and often, you know, this will be scars for a lifetime. Mm. Um, People losing limbs, uh, people horrifically burnt in the Texas explosion. And even for people that uh, have been nearby but aren't so physically wounded, sometimes there's that survivor guilt and shame and living a nightmare. Yes. What are some of the common responses of victims and their families? in the days that follow events Mm. like this? Mm. Often it will go in cycles. And often when an event actually unfolds, there's there's a sense of, you know, there's a lot of adrenaline flowing through both an individual body and, and also the kind of corporate community has this adrenaline kind of flowing through it where... There's, there's an elation and excitement even in the midst of the horror. And and so the mood is actually often quite buoyant immediately afterwards and people are rallying together and they get so much strength from supporting one another and saying that we are you know, not going to be beaten by this and people are fighting through. And that can often last for hours or days, but as the days go on, often you move into another phase where there's just despair, uh, outrage, 
you know, the anger is boiling up to the surface. And people are starting to realise the long-term impact of a disaster and how life will actually never be the same. And for someone that works in, you know, we call it disaster recovery, there are some disasters where recovery is just not possible. It's a good point to make. And, uh, and so there's a sense in which we need to think about renewal rather than recovery because to get back to the way it was when people have been permanently damaged, when lives have been lost, uh, the world just won't be the same. See, some people talk about, well, we need to get past this. But often you can't no, or you shouldn't. In a no, way. I don't think you should. And, and it, it does become part of life and, and significant events like that need to somehow be integrated with life from that point on, no matter how painful it is. It's not to say you can't move on. Yes. Um, you know, people need hope. They need to look forward. They need to find that something that, that pulls them forward into the future. And, uh, and I suppose that's where my thinking has been in terms of spiritual and emotional care to mm. people in the midst of that disaster. How do we help them? How do we come alongside them to encourage them to look forward despite the horror despite the loss, despite the pain and the suffering. So is there a right way and a wrong way to cope with disasters as we've seen over this last week? I think there's probably healthy and unhealthy ways to cope with a disaster. And I think uh, being totally shocked and overwhelmed and not knowing what to do is actually a normal response in circumstances like this. And, and it's entirely okay. And we, you know, as as fellow Christians, particularly on the journey with people that have uh, experienced significant crisis, need to be compassionate and gentle enough to allow people time to grieve and not to push people to, to get over it, but just to be with them. And sometimes uh, the cliches that we can come out with as Christians and the Bible verses that sometimes we quote completely out of context and perhaps inappropriately uh, are not always helpful and will not always endear us to someone that is suffering and, and may cause them to push, a, push us away, even though we're, we're trying to help them the best we can. And, yes. Yeah. So what's a right response if you're alongside someone mm. in the midst of great loss, for instance? Yeah, I, I think in the early days... Um, and I think this is something that can be practiced by anyone. <laughs> and uh, I think back to uh, the uh, one of the Crocodile Dundee movies where Paul Hogan uh, is in New York and uh, someone mentions someone who's seeing some psychotherapist and Paul Hogan just screws his face up and says, what's, what's wrong with them? Haven't they got any mates? And, and it's a bit like that. We just need to be mates with people. Yes. We don't need to take on the role of a, a psychologist. We don't need to even be their pastor. We just need to be their mate and sit with them, cry with them, weep with them. It's the We call it the, the ministry of presence. It's just being there and sometimes it's just being silent and sharing the pain 
and saying that, well, you're not alone. And it's incredible power for people to know, especially when they may have lost a loved one or they themselves have been grievously injured and may never fully recover, that there's someone there, that they're not alone. There's incredible strength. It's what Job's comforters initially did for him, just Mm. sit with him in silence. Then they stuffed it up by talking too much. That's right. And And blaming him. And we keep making the same mistakes. We we don't learn. (laughs) Just to be there and just embrace someone and to embrace the pain. And that's hard for the people that are with uh, those people as well. And and that's another message that I, I like to kind of ring out is that Uh, people that are involved in disasters, whether it's the first responders, firefighters, police, ambulance people, SES, whoever it is, but also um, chaplains, clergy, uh, individuals that have just happened to be there and come alongside, volunteers that come and assist. We all become disaster-affected people. We tend not to call them victims. Yes. We prefer to to use you know the disaster affected people because everyone is they're just people just like you and me. It's often just the time, the place, and the opportunity that brings us together. You worked as a firefighter for seventeen years. How did you find yourself in this role? During my time as a firefighter, I I loved working in my days off, and uh, for most firefighters, they they sometimes do that for a little bit of extra cash in their yes. back pocket. But for me, it was working in the church, and I figured no one had to pay me. I can, I could just get engaged in doing all the jobs around church that no one else particularly wanted to do. And I found quickly that I needed to get some more training, and so I went and studied at, uh, at Bible College. Really enjoyed my studies and kept going back to it. I had no intention of actually graduating when I first started studying, but I think it was about 11 years Actually, later that I that I graduated with a Bachelor of Theology, wow. uh, I think I had to resubmit my initial assignments because it kind of broke the rules there, so they had to be remarked. <laughs> so I think I hold the the distinction as the slowest learner in the college's history, but largely because I just loved going back and and learning new things and f- and finding out, you know, not just um, engaging with the scriptures more, but how can we how can I learn to apply it in the world mm. and uh, then I went to work for a couple of international Christian mission organizations, which was an incredible journey because uh, it was not just me, it was my family. I have a beautiful wife and three daughters, and we lived by faith for nearly 10 years, and um, and that got increasingly difficult. There was an opportunity there to bring ministry and my emergency services experience together, and so Anglicare's disaster recovery ministry which actually stretches right across the state and we have 1300 volunteers so i'm the only full-time employee in a disaster recovery ministry that stretches across the state i think it's a very notable thing that an organization like anglicare has this on its radar because it is a very significant part of our community coping with grief loss disaster yes it is and i think it's a significant moment for a church to be involved and and my message to any church is you know where are you going to be in the midst of a disaster where are you going to stand what are you going to be doing and most churches and most church leaders don't think about it until it actually happens 
And unfortunately, it's too late. Yes. Because often they will just get in the way and be a, a nuisance because they haven't thought it through. They're, they're well-intentioned but ill-informed. And so the opportunity is right here and now in before the disaster strikes to be trained to get to know who the main players are and to understand where is it that I can fit? How can I actually be a help rather than a hindrance? With the myriad numbers of disasters that you've been involved in and known about, is there one that stands above the rest where you had to confront a big thing and learn lots about how to cope? There have been a number of such events. Uh, Some are more personal than others. A few weeks into my career as as a firefighter, there was a, a large explosion in roads. It was the ICI chemical plant which blew up and five workers, they were all subcontractors, not employees of the plant, they lost their lives that day and we were the first station to respond. And I realised then as we were putting out uh, some of the numbers of fires that were already burning, it was a large explosion where a a tank nearly three metres tall cleared pipework about four storeys high and landed 150 metres on the other side. So you can imagine the force of the explosion. And we were first there and putting, putting out some of the spot fires and cooling some of those tanks. I knew it, and we all knew at that point, that you know our lives could easily be gone yes. and vaporised instantly. That was an interesting experience to reflect upon. I think you, your training makes you do it. And it's only afterwards that you really think about the danger that you were in at that time. And that's where my heart goes out to firefighters in Texas because I just kind of think we we all would have done and been in the same place. The inevitable question and the entirely understandable question is to question God in these times. How can you allow this to happen and why? How do you answer that? To answer that immediately, I'll choose not to. I'll tend to agree with a person who's crying out and to say, yeah, God does care and there is still hope. And it is a good question to ask. And it is a great question to ask. And I think another thing that I like to remind people of is that our God is a God that is so familiar with pain and suffering. And it was never, ever his intention for the world to be a place of such pain and suffering. That's not what he created it for. It's not what he created us for. And yet, at the same time, we we struggle so much with it. We struggle with our own mortality. We struggle with the fact that we will all die, that this entire world is kind of grinding to a halt one day. You know, every single sun in the universe will, will have its day and burn out. It's just the nature of what life is like but when it's it becomes more complicated when in a place like boston where it's deliberate yes sometimes even though the damage and the the number of injuries are perhaps even greater in texas it can be easier to cope because it's probably an accident uh, we don't know for sure but you know it's probably an accident whereas the other one is in boston it's it's evil how can people do this and I think it's a natural and normal question, particularly f- for those of us that are caught up in those sorts of things, to say, you know, how could God allow it to happen? 
personally, I, I choose to kind of measure those words and try to find out what stage of grief that person is at before I offer any trite answers or even engage in a serious theological conversation because yes. no matter how right you can be in your theology, if it's at the wrong time and not sensitive to where the person is at, it can just cause more pain. And initially, and for probably quite some time, they'll need care above everything else. That's right. And that speaks volumes. Yeah, yeah. And 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 that's the danger too. I, I had an opportunity to uh, go to the impact of Hurricane Sandy. I travelled to New York uh, for a couple of weeks wow. and uh, and had some amazing kind of God experiences in the midst of the pain of many people. We, I spent my time in Long Island, just north of New York, and it was such a flat area and the water basically went straight across um, the peninsula there and so many houses, even 10 blocks back from the, the ocean, were totally inundated and underwater. And um, yeah, and so we, I went as a, as a chaplain um, with the Billy Graham organisation working alongside Samaritan's Purse. And there was one house that I remember we, we went to and I kind of wondered why were we there, you know, here... The guy comes downstairs and he's kind of got the the hair gel in and he's he's got really slick New York clothes and he's kind of bopping on on both feet and he had surfboards everywhere hanging out he had a jetty out the back of his house and it, obviously quite a wealthy guy and um, and I thought God why am I here and normally we like to to minister mostly to the most vulnerable people, the yes. ones that can't really help themselves, that have nowhere else to turn, that don't have insurance. And and so we try and spend our time there. But this guy was a, was a wine merchant and would import wine and obviously made a very good living out of it. And we chatted with him and we were very polite to him and I thought, there's no way in the world we're going to be able to pray for this guy. We had a look through the house and we were... 20 minutes later back on the front of the street and saying goodbye and he opened up and he said I'm going to a funeral tomorrow and I said what, what's happened and his best mate's daughter had committed suicide and it took all that time for him to actually open up and I thought God this is why we're here and I was able to encourage him and just kind of say look this is the most important time for you to be with your mate. And because uh, he said, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And I said, it doesn't matter. You don't need to say anything. You've just got to be there. And I said to him, you know, the, the biggest tension at the moment is going to be the relationship between your mate and his wife. And you've got to be there for both of them. Bring your wife with you. Both of you be there and don't let them be alone. And that's the ministry of presence. And it's something that we can all practice. And we, and it's scary going into someone's darkness, into this void where we think, you know, we've never been there before. I, I'm not trained for this. But we will all have that opportunity with someone that we know. And I think we need to have the courage in God to know that, you know, God was there in the darkness for me. And he chose uh, to to be there for us. Uh, and 
in that moment when Jesus died on the cross, in that moment, God the Father and the Holy Spirit basically turned their back on Jesus. You know, the Trinity for that moment was kind of torn apart. And no wonder there was pitch black darkness across the land. And that's often what we feel like when we're in the midst of a crisis and disaster and even caught up in someone else's. You know, we kind of get enveloped by that darkness. But, you know, that's the good old Easter message, isn't it? That Sunday is coming. There is hope. There is light. And we need to persevere and we need to drag our friends and, you know, people in our congregations forward to see that light, just that little bit, and uh, and not be afraid. These are wonderful insights. And all praise to you for using such a wealth and depth of experience for such good, and also to Anglicare, who's set up this disaster recovery ministry. Magnus Linder, I'm so glad you've come in and uh, helped us deal with some of these big questions mm. and chart a road ahead for so many of us. Thank you so much for coming mm. in. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.